92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features the mysterious bookshop owner Otto Penzler in conversation with crime fiction writer James Elroy, author of The L.A. Quartet, The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz, and the Underworld USA trilogy American Tabloid, The Cold 6000, and Bloods a Rover. His latest novel is Perfidia. It was recorded on May 1st, 2015, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hello, good evening. I'm Otto, that's James. Um, very nice of you to come here tonight. Very happy to see you all. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, oh, stop waving at people. <clears throat> uh, James and I have been friends for uh, a very, very long time. I will tell you very briefly that how we met. I was uh, sitting in my bookshop, uh, in the old bookshop that I had on 56th Street. There was a spiral staircase, and I was sitting at my desk. And one day, this, uh, this rather large young man came up the staircase and uh, walked over to the desk, and he said, are you Otto Penzler? And I admitted that I was, and he put out his hand, and said, I'm James Elroy, I'm the next great one. <laughs> I didn't know at the time that he was right. I said, you'll forgive me if I reserve judgment, because at that point he had written one paperback original novel uh, which I had not read, and so I didn't really know anything about him. But I, at that time, I was, the, uh, I was a partner in a literary agency. In addition to starting the Mysterious Press, the publishing company uh, that eventually published James and many other writers, uh, and the Mysterious Bookshop, I ran uh, with my partner, Nat Sobel, who is James's agent and my agent and the greatest agent alive. Um, we were running the Mysterious Literary Agency, and James had shown up with a manuscript uh, and handed it to me, and I, I went reading it, and it was called L.A. Death Trip. Um, nice understated title, <laughs> the kind of thing that we've come to know. And uh, it became Blood on the Moon, which then became a movie uh, called Cop with James Wood. And uh, not, uh, not a very good movie, but a, but a very good book. And uh, I, wound, <clears throat> I wound up publishing that book at Mysterious Press eventually and published uh, the next six of uh, James's books. So um, that's just a little perspective about us. And uh, I'm going to just start by asking you, when did you think that you wanted to be a writer? I was about eight years old, and I loved to read. And I most specifically loved to read crime books. So it's no surprise that 30-odd years later, I started writing. And the first novel I ever wrote was a crime novel. It was heavily beholden to Raymond Chandler, a writer I have come to loathe and renounce and view as overrated, self-pitying, in the extreme, and altogether a big fat fucking pain in the ass, especially when compared to Dashiell Hammett and James M. Cain. But it was a private eye book, and it was in the first person, and first person novels are easier to write than third person novels because you only have to be in one viewpoint. You only have to have one set of perceptions, one set of eyes, and it saw me through the writing of that first book of mine, very, very handily. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what made you want to write? Why do you think you had that urge to, to, to write fiction? Because I wanted to be the man. <laughs> I wanted to be the big kahuna. I wanted a long, sleek Cadillac car and lots of boss bitches and lots of cool threads and a great hi-fi system and a pad in the Hollywood Hills. And I was 
too lazy to work, too nervous to steal, too proud to accept welfare, and so writing was the only option open to me. So your, your view was that the, the sure road to wealth and fame was writing. And I was full of rigor and passion and moral judgment and a great, great desire to portray on the page the horror and beauty that I saw in this world. Why do you think you were attracted to crime fiction as a reader? I understand why as a writer, because that's what you read, but why do you think you were drawn to crime fiction specifically as a young reader? Because it explored the riddle of character and motive. And because there was a mystery to be solved that kept one in suspense, because it was a big, singularly romantic, but not romantic enough genre. It is my most firmly held literary view that all drama is a man meets a woman. And this seemed to me, now it seems to me, in retrospect, is what drew me in. Do you regard yourself as a romantic writer? Yes. I am a romantic writer in the truest sense in that Beethoven and Brahms and Schubert and Schumann and Rachmaninoff and Chopin and Liszt and Wagner, Bruckner and Mahler were romantic composers. You, uh, <clears throat> are you comfortable with being called um, by Joyce Carol Oates, the American Dostoevsky, uh, by Dennis Lehane comparing you to Joseph Conrad, uh, and the other kind of very, very big compliments that you have received as a writer. Do you, uh, are you humbled by that at all? Otto, I live for that <laughs> shit. And you know I do. And if I weren't always looking to get back to the dark, cold, cloistered room to work, I could dine out on that forever. But the basis of my emotional hunger in what I always reach toward is the work itself and always trying to exceed myself with each successive book. That, that, that whole thing was a joke line because we know that he's very comfortable with that. Uh, and <laughs> as an aside, I will say this. Having uh, edited uh, James for, for many years, uh, and I've, I've said this recently too, uh, <coughs> I've worked, there was a period where I was working, I was publishing 40 original uh, books a year at the Mysterious Press and, uh, and many reprints as well. And I worked with a lot of writers and a lot of very, very good writers, people you've heard about uh, over the years, like Joyce Carol Oates and Ross MacDonald and, uh, and many others. No one, no one that I have ever worked with has worked as hard as Elroy as, in terms of going back and editing, rewriting, taking care with every word, the meticulousness of the the energy that went into all of the work that he did is not like anybody I've ever known. And then when the book was published, the same was true again for promotion. Tireless, endless work at promoting the book. Uh, there was one when The Black Dahlia came out. The Black Dahlia was a, a very, very successful book for us. And uh, James got in the car, got in a car in California and went to virtually every bookstore. I'm telling you, if there was a guy on the street selling used paperbacks, Elroy would stop and say, you got one of mine in there, I'll sign it for you. <laughs> he, he would go to radio shows early in the morning, late at night, anything that it took, uh, the, a kind of eth work ethic and effort that you rarely, rarely encounter. So all of the success that and I'm talking about you in third person, even though you're here, that, that James has had over time didn't come accidentally. It didn't come because people warm to him personally. Not that they don't, but they do. Um, but it was because of all of the hard work that he, all of the hard work that he does. So I'll get back to you now. 
What's our, what's your next question? It, that was just <laughs> that, a comment. That was a, yeah. that was an aside. Yeah, I wanted to put everything into context. I, I think it's important. So when when you rewrote L.A. Death Trip, your that became Blood on the Room, uh, Blood on the Moon. Yeah, uh, which was the first book in a trilogy mm-hmm. about Lloyd Hopkins. Talk a little bit about Lloyd Hopkins. Lloyd Hopkins was a present day, and this is the 1980s, Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective. Here is the great jurist, literary critic, David T. Bazelon on the art of Dashiell Hammett. The core of his vision is the masculine figure in American society. He is primarily a job holder. He goes at his job with a bloodthirsty determination which proceeds from an unwillingness to go beyond it. This relationship to the job is perhaps typically American. The question of doing or not doing a job competently has replaced the whole larger issue of good and evil. Lloyd Hopkins is a compulsive womanizer and a man with an entirely disordered inner life who imposes order on external events, i.e. homicide investigations, to quiet the horror, terror, ennui, and stasis in his soul. This is the Hammett construction to me writ large, but not in the context of the Continental Op or Sam Spade or Nick Charles, more realistically, in a present-day homicide detective. Right. Hopkins worked uh, officially in the police department of L.A., but he really was on his own a great deal. No one would call your Lloyd Hopkins novels police procedurals because Hopkins was really a lone wolf in many ways. He was a vigilante. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a different way of saying lone wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... So worked a little bit uh, the way a private eye would yeah. on his own, yeah. you know, with the, with the badge and gun uh, that he was able to use. Um, we did three of those books, Blood on the Moon, Suicide <coughs> and Because the Night. And the sales were moving up a little bit on each book. A very good character. I really, I really liked the character at the time. And... Uh, and James came to me and, uh, after the third book and said, I, I want to write a different book. I'm writing a different book. And it's the book that I was born to write. And I said, geez, you know, uh, the Hopkins books are really good. I'm really getting to like this character. And the sales are starting to improve. You might not want to give up on, on Lloyd Hopkins. He said, no, no, no. I was born to write this book, and I'm going to write it. And that book became The Black Dahlia which wound up having five or six printings in hardcover and made the New York Times bestseller list as a mass-market paperback with a first printing of 450,000 copies. I bring that up just to show my astuteness as an editor. (laughs) So what about the Black Dahlia? What made you leave Lloyd Hopkins and, and go into this, leave the present day, the contemporary and move back in time to write The Black Dahlia, which was set in the late 1940s. I love history. I love L.A. history. I'm from L.A. I love American history. I'm an American. I have always lived in the time before my early cognizance and before my birth. Elizabeth Short was the Black Dahlia. She was murdered in Los Angeles in January of 1947. I had been obsessed with the case since my own mother's murder, unsolved also, in 1958. I learned of Elizabeth Short's death, the Black Dahlia murder case, some seven months after my mother's death in March of 1959 when my dad got me Jack Webb's book, The Badge, on the occasion of my 11th birthday. And that book, The Badge, by Jack Webb, contained a haunting 10-page summary of the Black Dahlia murder case, and it was as if my mother, Geneva Hilliker, and Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, merged as one in transmogrification. It's a very simple story of a young bereaved boy's process of transference. Jean Hilliker, Elizabeth Short. Ergo, 29 years later, I wrote the novel. I loved writing in period vernacular. I love period police work. I love period police methods. 
I love L.A. in the 1940s. I've been writing historical novels ever since. You dedicated that book to your mother. I did, yes. Yes. And it was the first book of the L.A. Quartet. Yes, the L.A. Quartet is the Black Dahlia, the Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz, my epic pop history of L.A., my smog-bound fatherland between 1946 and 1958. And most of those books, if memory serves, um, you wrote with three points of view, three characters mm-hmm. who, who drive the narrative and they cross over, they mm-hmm. interconnect. But what is it like trying to make sure that each of those three characters is blending into a, into a whole that's cohesive? The outlines for those books were minutely detailed and copiously long. And, for example, the most complex of the four books the longest of the four books, is L.A. Confidential. It was a 350-page outline. That is all of the action described, down to the most minute detail, the character arcs, all the plot arcs, and there are 14 plot lines in L.A. Confidential. This gives me a sense that the book is bedrock. It is impervious,ly strong at levels of plot, characterization, milieu. Also, having a superstructure that detailed allows me to live in the individual scenes with great force and to ad-lib within the confines of those scenes limitlessly. So you have immediate scenes of great and immediate power and a profound superstructure. The Outline for Perfidia, my most recent novel published last year, on sale back here, 700 pages. 700-page book. What a, what a coincidence. <laughs> I came to work. That's for sure. The uh, LA, I always remembered the moment being with the big nowhere, but, uh, but I'm sure you're right when you say it was L.A. Confidential in which you developed the style for which you have uh, become recognized now, which is moving from a, a traditional, smooth um, kind of writing to what is frequently called telegraphic or telegramic, uh, which I tend to think of as dissonant jazz. Uh, much punchier, much quicker, much crisper than your early styles. What, what brought that about? An editor who worked under you there at Mysterious Press and Warner Books required 150 pages of cuts. I cut no scenes. I cut no characterizations. I cut sentence by sentence individual words. And I developed the style that you just described, which I deployed in LA Confidential in the third person, White Jazz in the first person, and only two other novels. No, actually only one other novel, The Cold 6000. I am castigated for that style. I am overpraised for that style. And people consider all of my books, since LA Confidential, to be in that style, when in reality only two have been in that style. No. I, I am a master of concision. There are only two books of mine that feature word omissions and abbreviations to that degree. The style is over-reported. <clears throat> well, I don't think you know it's your... It's so powerful, though, that how can you ignore it? And how can such a thing be over-reported? I don't know. I, I, I don't think you know your own style because... Uh, no, I, don't, the, I know every, the, I'm the, I'm the, the man with the 700-page <laughs> outline. The, the, Self-knowledge is my... The opening of Perfidia is very brisk, very short, very punchy, uh, and that is the style that you've developed. Not as much as in L.A. Confidential or or White Jazz, but still, that is your style now, and and you're recognized for it. And I have always ma- I have maintained that 
because of that innovative style, you have become, in many ways, the most uh, copied, the most, uh, uh, the most influential writer in the crime world for the, over the last 25 years. Just the crime world? <laughs> yeah. What was I thinking? Yeah. We, you've introduced me in this manner for the past week on numerous occasions, and you've never qualified it with the crime world. That's why I wondered if you've reconsidered over the past couple of days. No, I just, I don't have a script. It slipped out, okay. I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. It's okay. Okay. The most influential writer in the world, that the world has ever known, is what I meant to say. Yes. I'll take that, I'll take that as well. Okay. I did, I you, I'll take that as well. Frank O'Connor wrote many years ago, maybe 100 years ago, a literature that cannot be vulgarized is no literature at all and will not last. And he meant vulgarized along the lines of made common, made real to a broad readership. I love the American idiom. I love style. I love the English language. I love racial invective. I love racial slurs of all kinds. I love Yiddish. I love black, hepcat, hipster, jazz, patois. I love alliteration. I love hard C words spelled with a K. Or, more specifically, A-K-K-K is in the Ku Klux Klan. Because I love racial humor of all stripes. I love the American idiom. I love the outrageousness of the English language. And abbreviation and stylistic rigor is a big part of it for me. You, uh, you just mentioned uh, uh, race. race. Mm -hmm. uh, just about all of your books have uh, three elements mm -hmm. that, I, that, I, that leap out at me. One is, uh, is the issue of race. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the, uh, the, the period mm -hmm. novels. Race in L.A., mm -hmm. uh, political corruption, mm -hmm. and sexual obsession. Right. Why is that? Why do you go back to those themes on a regular basis? These are the things of life. These are the things of the overrated science of sociology, the outmoded science of psychology. These are rudiments of the failed god that is Marx. And I feel beholden to create a society for you because I want to live in that society, because I'd rather live then than now. I'm having a blast living now. It's 2015. I'm 67 years old. I don't feel it. I don't look it. If I had hair, I wouldn't look a day over 21. <laughs> but I don't have hair which is the one thing that keeps me humble. <laughs> <laughs> and I have an unbridled, unvarnished, uncondescending love of the American idiom in 1947, 1962, 1958, 1955, which is the real moment when I am frozen in time and the twin influences of my childhood, the Lutheran Church and the Holy Bible and confidential magazine <laughs> merge as one. So I come from a strong moral background. I have a strong moral sense but motherfuckers, I gotta tell you, I want the dirt. <laughs> I want the goods. Who's got the goods? Who's a homo? Who's a lesbo? Who's a nympho? Who's shooting big H? 
Who's a hophead? Who's a dipso? That shit means a great deal to me. And if you'd sign a book with me after this performance, I will give you the goods from Hollywood <laughs> and politics today. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush hush. After one rat out per book sold. It ain't free. I live then, Otto. I live then. It's all then and now for me. I'm not delusional. I go to the store. I have a car. I pay my bills. It's 2015. We're in New York City. We're at 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue. I'm going to walk out of here. There's no flying saucers out there. But really? In my heart. Really? Man, oh, man, it's, <laughs> it's L.A., the month of Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's, that's where Perfidia is, and, and that's where the next, the next book will take off from where you ended Perfidia, won't it? Here's what's going on here. Perfidia is my most recent novel. It is the second, excuse me, the first novel of my second L.A. Quartet. There's the original L.A. Quartet, 1946 to 1958 L.A. The Black Daddy, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, White Jazz. I followed it up with the Underworld USA trilogy, American Tabloid, The Cold 6000, and Bloods a Rover. Goes 58 to 72. What the second L.A. Quartet does is take characters from the first two extended bodies of work and place them in Los Angeles during World War II as significantly younger people. Perfidia is the first book in the series. It is a 700-page novel set between December 6, 1941 and the end of the month. It's told in real time. It's my best book. It's, the, it's, it's my favorite of your books over the last 15 years. It's... It's a really, it's a fabulous, fabulous achievement, I think. Thank you. I really do. Um, you, you brought back the characters from, uh, from all of the books. Well, not every character, mm -hmm. but m many of the major characters. Those who served, not necessarily those who survived, right. but characters that we got to know fairly well in the L.A. Quartet. There they all are in Perfidia, but earlier, younger, yes. as yes. they were... Forming and if we if we if you have read the L.A. Quartet and then read Perfidia, it's just it's a, it's astonishing to see where those people came from, and then became those people in that quartet. What was it like for you to get into the head of uh, a, I don't know Bucky Bleichert, say, and suddenly make him ten years younger or twelve years younger than he was when he was the star or one of the stars of one of your books. What was it like? Well, the grand design of the second L.A. Quartet is to render with four big novels set during World War II my previous seven books, seven into 11, lucky numbers book, seven, 11, thus creating a coherent 31-year narrative, fictional history of L.A., my hometown, America, my country, between 1941 and 1972. First thing I did was go back, read my own seventh previous books, and compile fact sheets and chronologies so that I wouldn't write myself into error. The ages, physical descriptions of the major characters, the key facts of their later lives, what I had already written about their earlier lives. It's all about the big canvas, the big romantic tableau in the end. It's been a gas. I can't tell you how much I enjoy getting up in the morning writing these books. Good. Um, what are, we're, we're happy you're happy. Um, one of the things that you do in Perfidia and what you did in the LA, in, well, in the LA Quartet and the America, the Underworld uh, trilogy, is you mingle your characters that you've made up with real life people, mm -hmm. and um, some of your characters are based a little bit on real life people. Bucky Blackard is to you is you to a large degree. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And you, you, one of the good things about working in the study books in the 40s is that most of the people that you're writing about are dead. Otherwise, right. you couldn't do it. No, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. 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 Or they'll sue you. So, so, so you, it's handy for you to pull real-life people like, the, uh, like Parker, the, the previous mm-hmm. L.A. Uh, police chief, mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover, bring in these people. It yeah. makes the books colorful for you. Do you like doing that? Do you research those people to make sure that you get them right as well as your own characters? I trust myself to write their dialogue from scratch. I only do threadbare research. I hire researchers who compile fact sheets and chronologies for me so that I won't write myself into error. By and large, I am only looking for one thing. That spark point, the occasional idea, I want no secret information. I have most of it up here already. I want to extrapolate to extend off established facts and create my own universe without writing myself into error. So I am looking for facts that give me the latitude to fictionalize. Beyond that, I trust myself to create dialogue for J. Edgar Hoover or John F. Kennedy or William H. Parker or Martin Luther King or Robert F. Kennedy. I just, in the end, make it up. Well, you're a fiction writer. You're better. That's your job. Yes. My intention is to rewrite history to my own specifications. <laughs> it's a benign form of megalomania. <laughs> one manifestation of it. Yes, one manifestation <laughs> only. Uh, you write about Hoover, uh, but you, see, you, you don't write about him in quite as lurid a way as his reputation has uh, has has been espoused. How do you? Are you talking about his homosexuality? Well, it, and it's the, all in his and the flamboyance of what has been reported. I think you mean you mean probably, him dressing up and drag at the Waldorf Astoria? Yeah, it never happened. It's a bunch I of shit. Believe you, yeah, yeah. He was a celibate homosexual, Jagger Hoover, Gager Hoover, whatever you want to call him. Thus, it all goes into his reaction to my male characters in his flamboyant way of speaking. He steals every scene that he's in. Mm-hmm. I hated for him to die at the end of Bloods Are Over. Yeah. But he's back in Perfidia. Yeah, that's a nice thing about going back. Yeah. You get another bite out of the apple. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was a very important part of the L.A. Quartet was Hush Hush Magazine, which was based obviously on, uh, on Confidential Magazine, very, very similar. It gave you the opportunity to fool around with... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, to not use the real names of... Or did you? I, I, I used the real names of celebrities, but, yeah. But then you, change, you also changed some and... Uh, well, they, not all of them were dead at that point. They're all, right. all dead by now. So if I want to use Hush Hush magazine, I can spill the real beans. Yeah. Or make up some new dirt to fit some real-life celebrities. <laughs> Remember my offer after the show. <laughs> Off the record on the QT and very Hush Hush. Yeah, that was the... Tagline for yeah. Hush Hush magazine. Um, you going to bring it back in Perfidia? It didn't or, exist. I mean, in, in the next book after Perfidia? No, nah, it didn't exist. Scandal rag journalism, as we knew it, was a, a, it was a creation of the 1950s. It really started in 53 with Confidential. So it wasn't around then. Okay. Um, we have a, I know we have a, t- a time limit, but I have, I'm not wearing a watch, so... I don't it's know. 805. 8.07. And, and do you remember how long we're supposed to talk before we uh, ask for questions? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk to the folks now. Have you got anything more? No, yeah, I'm just what trying. Well, I'm, I was trying to fill in because I, I, I don't have another question at the moment. more questions. Don't, don't you? Well, this man has a question. Okay, well, All right. I may come back with another question. Yes, this later. man may have another question. Yes, sir. But you, you can go first. What's on your mind? Mr. Elroy. Yeah. Yeah? When I was a kid and I read Black Dog. Yeah, give me a hair transplant. Fucker, look at this. What a head of hair. Anytime. What? I feel like I can ask you personal questions about the 
Sure. Not okay. Um, I went back and reread Steve Hodel's second edition. No, no questions. Okay. okay, brother. Is this about mutilations on Elizabeth Short no, no, or anything no, like no, that? No. Okay. No, no, no. I just okay. It's a bunch of shit. No, no, we don't know who killed Elizabeth Short. Let the poor woman live. Let her live. She's up there. She's smiling down on us. We're all going to meet her in heaven sooner or later. It's like love, man. It's going to get your ass. We don't know. None of the theories are convincing. None. There is no validation, no verification of any single evidential piece, let alone a big established case against any potential suspect. We don't know. And you get another question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when you listed the features that you we'll talk again. in the Elroy novel, you left the one out that, that, I, that I think of as very characteristic, which is characters who struggled with dependency. And mm -hmm. it's obviously a very dramatic topic, mm -hmm. you know, and, it, and it, it creates a lot of the most dramatic scenes in, Wondering, is that, you know, that, that seemed to really be rich ground for you. You come mm -hmm. back to it a lot. And I was just mm -hmm. wondering if, you know, you didn't bring it up, so I didn't know if this is something that, you know, isn't on the, on the list, but it, it, I was wondering if you'd comment on that. You're talking about alcoholism and drug addiction. Pills and, 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 it's, and, it's, and, and it's not just, it's not just out there in the background as a, as a, as a proscenium under which, you know, crime gangsters are, are having wars with each other, but it's like your main characters are, you know, they're, they're, Completely blotto drunk and, mm -hmm. you know, hot pads. You know, exactly. Yeah. While all the most, yeah. some of the most exciting things are happening, and it's their own fighting mm -hmm. against that, and they renounce, and then they and then they lapse, and mm -hmm. and it, and, that, and that sort of is is one of the real engines of what you're doing. And I was just wondering, you know, that that that, that you come back to it. And I was wondering. If okay, I am the purveyor of and the prophet of the great 20th century male experience. Think about this. I write from the big, hard-charging, shit-kicking, righteous, right-wing, white man, police officer viewpoint. I write about male lives in extremis. I write about lives in extremis in general. That is my metier. Specifically within that, I tell the story of bad men in love with strong women. If it's passionate, if it's hopped up, if it's supercharged in the moment, chances are two things. I'm going to depict it vividly. Chances are also that I know something about it. And chances are, if it results in moral misconduct, I am going to condemn it. That's the key right there. Moral condemnation, that kind of bad, bad, bad behavior. And it's the thing that very few people ever talk about in my work is the stern imposition of morality. I despise nihilism. I despise minimalism. I despise the picayune, the chicken shit, the unromantic, the unrigorous. If I could name right off the bat three writers that I truly, truly despise, the key guys would be hopped up William S. Burroughs, who murdered his wife in Mexico in 1950. Given my circumstances, I have a very, very dim view of rapists and anyone who hurts women. William S. Burroughs, Hunter S. Thompson, and Charles Bukowski. The glorification of dependency and excess. The denial of its immoral root cause and its spiritual bankruptcy. That's the critique of dependence at the core of my work. That was nicely stated. <laughs>
was well done. You have, uh, you have been accused of being pessimistic in your work, mm -hmm. but moral. I'm not pessimistic in the least. I'm optimistic. In your... I think, yes, in my work. I think the human race is working it out. God ain't through with us yet. Give us another couple millennia and let's see where we are. <laughs> let's, let's reconvene in 2,000 years, all of us, in whatever guise we exist in then, and we'll see where we are. Okay. <laughs> I know, what, do you have a question? Are you waving or just waving? Hello. Well, I have a question, but if you're talking, that's fine. No, it's okay. If you have a question. <laughs> If you didn't hear, the question is, define romanticism. It's the exaltation of physical love. It is a love of nature. It is the human being as godly vessel in conflict with the crass, the small-spirited, the minimalistic, the nihilistic, the picayune. It's the large moment and the small moment merged. Crescendo and adagio expanded. It's the expansion of dramatic form. It is a love of sonata form, which is the key form of symphonic romanticism. Big expository first movement. Tender, slow, beautifully etched, often heartbreaking middle movement, recapitulative third movement. I've learned more from classical music than I've ever learned from reading books. You were, you were influenced, though, by uh, a few writers, Jack Webb being one of uh -huh. them, and Joseph Wambaugh. Yes. Who wrote about police in, in an honest way, with the way you do in a, in a more expansive way, I would say. Yeah. Joe Wambaugh is tremendously important to me. Single, he is the father of the American police novel. Only a policeman could have written Joe Wambaugh's best fiction. Joe Wambaugh destroyed the Chandler private eye archetype and created his own. Instead of the fast-talking, jive-talking, reclusive, isolated, self-pitying private eye who has a very straightforward convenient eye on society at large and hatred for mundane things like authority, which is a very convenient target, frankly. Wambaugh gives us the traumatized policeman who is, in his rightest, absurdist's view, the spokesman and the enforcer for a flawed but just authority, and is thusly traumatized by what he sees. It is my belief, it is Joe Wamba's belief, that put all notions of race, poverty, sociology, the Marxist social critique into the ash can. What is crime? Crime is only this. It is individual moral forfeit on an epidemic scale. Joe Wamba, James Elroy, half a generation apart, a policeman, a civilian. Very, very different from the police department as depicted by Jack Webb in uh, The Badge or uh, on his television show, 
Yes, that's but true. You were, but you still were influenced by that book. Granted, you were 11 at the it's time. That's true. When I read yeah. that book and I, when I watched the first iteration of that TV show. Yeah, Dragnet. True. Dragnet. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember the name for a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boss. It's a book of photographs. It's a book of photographs published by Abrams Image, called from the LAPD archives from the year 1953. It's written in conjunction with my very good friend, Glenn Martin, who is a retired LA policeman and who is the executive director of the Los Angeles Police Museum. I wrote the text. There are a lot of great photographs. There's a great essay by me and all the proceeds go to the Los Angeles Police Museum to help us with our publishing program. <coughs> now, on sale <laughs> at the Mysterious Bookshop, yes. Autographed copies on sale. Autographed copies, yeah. yes. No, brother, I live for that shit. <laughs> you know, he never takes I'm, a day off. No, I never take a day off. American Tabloid is my big book of 1958 and 63. America culminates in the death of John F. Kennedy. Here's the thing about that. I got to whack JFK. I got to hang out with the Cuban exiles, you know, invade the Bay of Pigs with the exiles, hang out with Sam Giancana, Momo, and the boys in Chicago hang out with the Klan in Mississippi during the Civil Rights era. Nobody gets hurt. You don't take time off from that shit. You keep going. That that book, by the way, American Tabloid, was picked as the best fiction book of the year by Time Magazine. Um, so you know, picked a good book. Uh, that reminds me, though, the, the question about this new book reminds me uh, about the fact that you also write uh, nonfiction. You've mm -hmm. written a lot of essays for GQ, mm -hmm. uh, which have been collected in books like mm -hmm. Crime Wave, etc. Uh, what do you? How do you like writing nonfiction? Do you find it more difficult, easier, more challenging, boring, <laughs> exciting? It's not as much something. It's yeah, not as give much me fun as writing a novel, Otto. Okay. Nah. For one thing, you have to tell the truth. <laughs> Although with essays, you can voice inflammatory opinions. There's that right there. I will never write nonfiction again. I'll never write an essay again. If I need some, some quick guilt, I'll write a movie or a TV show. Huh. Novels from here on in. Okay. Huh. Well, now we know. You, you want to... Hey, boss. You don't have to, brother. It's not, it's not a requirement for American citizenship. I now want to. Well, God bless you. No, no, you should begin with Perfidia because it's the most recent book. It's the hardcover I'm here to sell. And it's the chronological beginning of my life's work. It, it's the ideal book, sir. <laughs> No, you start at the beginning That's of right. the line. Actually, it is. It, it really is the beginning. Uh, I mean, apart from the fact that he's yeah he's here to sign the sell the book tonight. It really is the beginning, and you'll meet these people now, and then meet them again 
in the later books uh, where they've matured and, uh, and become more of who they are. But it, it's, it is actually a great place to start. Because well, it's a shitty book. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you and Helen Canode here. You know, serial killers. Oh, man. You know, there's some books of mine you want to see, and there's some books of mine you want to flee. And I'm not very fond of that book. It's terrifying, but it's, it's real. I mean, it's... It, I made it up. I, you know, yeah. It's okay, brother. It's a dream that is terrifying. It's... it's yeah, I'm, I'm, it, takes, it takes all kinds to make the world go around. And I'm glad you dig it. I'm glad you think that white jazz is the Moby Dick of our era. And it's the first time I've heard it, you know, frankly. And people have asked me, what's the theme of white jazz? I don't know what the theme of white jazz is. But as, as I told the woman sitting behind you 20 years ago once, I finally figured out what the theme of Moby Dick is. Raise your hand if you want to hear what the theme of Moby Dick is. After all these years, I've figured this out. Yeah? Don't fuck with the white whale. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. Might as well go with questions because they have better questions than I do. Brother, what do you got? Hey, Mom, how are you? <laughs> it's well worth it. Um, do you have a ritual after you've finished a novel? Is there like a celebratory it, process? Or? No, it's, it's generally a big, hairy, kick-ass emotional moment for me. I like to get quiet. I like to pray. I like to be alone with God. And I like to just feel the import of having finished another book. You're welcome. Brother. Where does uh, Mailer and Capote fit in? No place. I don't give a shit about Norman Mailer and Truman Capote. You know, the most overrated book of the American 20th century, In Cold Blood, which, by the way, is fraudulent. There was a book published about six months after In Cold Blood called In Cold Fact, pointing out Capote's fabrications and distortions of the truth, which began to accrue almost immediately after the book was published. He was contradicted in print by none other than Alvin Dewey, who was the chief investigator for that case. Right at the top of Capote's omissions and distortions are these. Perry Smith's homosexuality, Dick Hickok's pedophilia, and the fact that Hickok killed the two clutter women instead of the more dramatic, more heart-wrenching of the two killers, Perry Smith. There's also, by the way, not much levy of conscience in that book. And in case you haven't heard it here first. They were cowardly, perverted, chicken shit, evil motherfuckers, and they deserve to hang. Off the record, on the QT, and very <laughs> hush, hush. Both Capote and Mailer were jive, plaisirs, provocateurs, and exploiters of the American 1960s. He actually, Capote, though, actually, Coyote. actually did frequently refer to it as a novel. Just a shame it wasn't just published to point, as just such. Just to point uh, out that, uh, you know. We called it a nonfiction novel, but it was always shelved 
in LA at least, under 354.8. True crime in the Dewey Decimal System. Jack Hughes. Next question. Yeah, boss. Eighty-page outline for my first novel, yeah. Hundred and forty-page novel for my second. Outline for my second. Then did you research prior to that then a system to write a novel? Did you know that outline? I just did it. Just did it. Uh, you do you use a computer for this? I've never used a computer in my life. I don't have a cell phone, I write by hand. You write by hand. Yeah. You know that. Otto. <laughs> yeah. Big print block lettering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, give, it to, give it to a secretary to type out. Yeah. yeah. Is there a special pen? Pilot. Ballpoint. Black. Fine point. They don't bleed. They don't blot. They don't shed. And I correct and run right out into the margins. All capitals, arrows, and every arrow has on it a tip and feathers at the end. <laughs> I draw the feathers at the end. <laughs> tip like that. Out the margins back. There's a question over there. Do you have any favorite authors like Twain, Charles Dickens, any of those guys? Nah. <laughs> nah. There are individual books that have greatly moved me. The most influential book of my lifetime, Libra by Don DeLillo. His book about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, seen largely from the viewpoint of Lee Harvey Oswald, in every way the inspiration for my book, American Tabloid. I credit Mr. DeLillo for attribution every chance I get. Compulsion by Meyer Levin, his great novel of the Leopold Loeb killing, Chicago, 1924. True Confessions by John Gregory Dunn, also based on the Black Dahlia murder case, but a transposition of Irish Catholic Hartford, Connecticut, to Los Angeles after the war. Joseph Wambaugh, of course, and the early Wambaugh, the New Centurions, the Blue Knight, the Choir Boys, the Onion Field, George V. Higgins's first two novels, The Friends of Eddie Coyle and The Diggers Game. One of Ross McDonald's books, The Far Side of the Dollar. One of Raymond Chandler's books, Farewell, My Lovely, before Chandler started to lose it. Let's see what else. James M. Kane. Hold on. Hey, brother, hold on. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm thinking. Yeah. That's really about it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we haven't uh, talked about while you were talking uh, about that gave me a chance to think also. I actually came up with another question. Uh, we haven't talked at all about the movies that have been made from your books. Oh, shit. Well, Let, let's talk about the movies. Uh, there's movies you want to see, and there are movies you want to flee. LA Confidential? Not profound. Rather good. The guy who won the Academy Award for writing the screenplay hates it. Russell Crowe's miscast and no good. Kevin Spacey's miscast and no good. Russell Crowe has absolutely no vibe with the miscast Academy Award winning Kim Basinger. It's a very lively, witty, proficient motion picture that's been overrated over time. But it's a fine movie and it sold some books for me. But then you have a movie you want to flee, The Black Dahlia, which sold more books for me in seven weeks than L.A. Confidential did in 18 years and 20 times more books. And it was a lousy to movie. The it was the shits. It wasn't even comprehensible. No. But man, it sold some books. Also, but let's, let's remember, it's a great book. Yeah. That, that matters. That yeah. may matter. Yeah, it does. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, it does. A whole new concept. Money is the gift that no one ever returns. The color green is always flattering, and the size large always fits. You don't want them to mess up your book, make it into a second-class motion picture. Don't sell them the rights. I am constitutionally incapable of refusing money for nothing, which is what a movie option is. Good. I think we've covered that. Are those waving things at me saying that we're done? Is that what you're doing? Uh, okay. Man, the back. Yeah, I, I, yeah. There's. I liked it when I was a kid. They were good YA books. They don't hold together when you're a gifted novelist yourself. I reread them as an adult. Tossed them. It's just that simple. And I'm tired of hearing about Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammond and James M. Kane and L.A. Arriba Wamba, Arriba Donkey Don DeLillo, uh, the rest of these guys. Eh. Yes, Helen. Could you talk about your relationship to what's considered non-serious literature, like your love of Irving Wallace and Harold Robbins? And oh, yeah. Helen, I love that shit. <laughs> Irving Wallace, Irv the Perv. Oh, man. And Harold Robbins. Harold Robbins, author of The Carpetbaggers. What did Frank O'Connor say, audience? He said, a literature that cannot be vulgarized is no literature at all and will not last. I read Irving Wallace and Harold Robbins in 1961 and 1962, by and large, when I was 13 and 14 years old. I like Harold Robbins as a historical novelist. The great Romana Clay Howard Hughes book, The Carpetbaggers. I love Irving Wallace, more of a moralist, frankly, than Harold Robbins for two of his great works of art that grabbed me by the nuts as a kid and hot-wired me to sex and to popular fiction. When I give talks at the Episcopal Church School of Los Angeles, junior high school for Christian kids, Protestant kids, I tell them, kids, here is the way to have a properly mediated relationship with sex. Read Sleazo novels from the early 70s back to the early 60s. You're not gonna get an STD. It comes down on the side of authority in the end. Promiscuity and overall lack of virtue are punished and you get some good uh, 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 titillating shit in the meantime. Read Irving Wallace's The Chapman Report, i.e. the Kinsey Report, updated to America in 1960s, full of homos, lesbos, nymphos, satyrs, dope fiends, and drug addicts, and his masterpiece, The Fan Club, wherein four horn dog perverts who couldn't even get laid in the early 1970s kidnap a film goddess because they believe they are the only ones who can turn her on. It's perverted, it's ugly, it's misogynistic, but Irv the Perv Wallace is having it both ways because Sharon Fields, the film goddess, gets the goods on these guys and shoots their dicks off. You get it both ways. Morality is restored in the end. It is a feminist triumph. Aren't you glad you asked that question? Uh, James Elroy teaching children at an Episcopalian school is such a frightening notion to me. <laughs> Sending them to Irving Wallace Ir Ir and Harold Robbins. Oh, man, those, those were some fucking God, writers. you missed Mickey Spillane. Oh, Mickey Spillane. Holy shit. James, come on. Let's talk about, come on. Let's, let's talk about let's the talk Mick. About, let's talk about the mixture. Ask me some questions. 
about Mickey Small. I'll say, I'll say one thing first. What's that? Ayn Rand, in a book yeah, called yeah. The Romantic Manifesto. She loved Mickey Small. Loved yeah. Mickey and said he's the last great romantic writer. I can dig that. I can dig that. Because I dig, I dig Ayn Rand and I dig Mickey Splint because I hate totalitarianism and Mickey Splint so was one of the great anti-communist writers yep. of the American 50s and 60s. As in One Lonely Night when he strings the commies up by meat hooks and Tommy guns their arms and legs off. Yeah. Yeah. And in another scene he, he takes one puts a spike through his hand with yeah. a big hammer, puts a spike through his hand on the ground and says, wait here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Mick, was the, the Mick was the man. You know, God bless him. God bless him. I yeah. love the Mick. Yeah, me too. Yeah. What's your favorite Mickey Spillane book? One Lonely Night. Yeah. Yeah, you're not far off. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but all of the first seven books. Yeah. You know, at one point, Mickey's, Mickey Spillane, of the ten best-selling uh, novels in the history of the United States. Seven of them were written by Mickey Spillane. And a critic came to him and said, how do you account for the fact that seven of the ten best-selling novels in American history are written by you? With a sneer. And Mickey said, if you don't watch your mouth, I'll write another one. <laughs> Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> but I like I liked, uh, The Jury, the first book. Yeah. 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 Kiss Me Deadly. Can I give away an ending on a book? Yeah, it was easy, I said, right? Yeah, tell, tell us. He's got a, uh, Mike Hammer is uh, trying to find the killer of his best friend and uh, meets this girl, he actually kind of falls for her, very much like Sam Spade and uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy yeah. in, uh, in The Maltese Falcon. And at the very end of the book, um, she, uh, she puts her arms around him, and he knows that she was the killer of his best friend. And he shoots her. He's got her arms around her, she sh he shoots her in the belly. And as she's sinking to the ground, she says, how could you? And, he's, and the book ends with the last line, it was easy. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, Juno's a man. Juno, yeah, the yeah. last line of yeah. the book. Now, this is, this is something else for the kids at the Episcopalian school. <laughs> Does anybody want to ask, why do you write? I'll answer that at the first question. I'm listening. What? what? I, I asked you that. That was the first question I asked tonight. Yeah, but, you know, this, it's my closer, brother. It's my closer. <laughs> oh, James, why do you write? In my artist soul and craft... <laughs> Exercise in the still night when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms. I labor by singing light, not for the strut and trade of charms upon the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart do I write on these spindrift pages, but for the lovers, their arms around the griefs of the ages, who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my art. Craft, Dylan Thomas. Thank you, audience. There we go. Thanks for listening. For more information on 92nd Street Y and all of our programs, please visit us on the web at 92y.org. This program is copyright 2015 by 92nd Street Y.